0: Welcome to a
1: brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Well, COVID-19 cases are sadly rising and a number of states are implementing new lockdown measures like Virginia and Michigan. And then if you add the fact that the weather is getting colder and colder... Well, it's a really good time to jump back into some favorite TV shows. And, you know, frankly, sometimes we all just want to unplug a little bit from the craziness of 2020. But Lauren, you're finding that some of the shows you're watching right now are not letting you escape from the COVID-19 craziness. Yeah, so I've, I mean, it's not a a big secret.
0: I love watching TV. It's one of the, like... Probably my number one hobby, because books are for nerds. Um, okay. But, uh, but uh, you know, so uh, obviously very excited. I think the first show back was This Is Us, right? And it's so sad. It's like the family can't see one another because they all have to wear masks. And, you know, I watched it. Whatever. The COVID stuff, what got me more was the Black Lives Matter, which is a whole nother tangent. But then, okay, next show. Superstore, big you know fan of that. Lean's kind of liberal, but it's it's really funny. Same thing. It's all about them wearing masks and COVID, and it's just I want to escape. I want to forget that I you know I can't do anything without wearing a mask. You know I probably won't be able to see my grandparents for Thanksgiving. I don't want to think about it every waking moment of the day. I want to just you know be able to mentally escape. And then most recently, Grace Anatomy started up last week, and it was a two episode premiere. And the first episode was just all about people dying of COVID and mask wearing. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that Grey's Anatomy should never show it. Uh, you know, I I don't think that they should, you know, minimize what the first responders and the doctors went through. But I don't know. There's just something about it that really annoys me that I'm like, we're all still going through this. You know, this would be like uh, during wartime, the 1940s, all the shows would be in war. And we, we couldn't just for one moment forget and like, just remember a time where we weren't locked down, we could see our family and yeah, I, that's my little soapbox for Virginia.
1: So the message to Hollywood is, if you wondered if it was too soon, it was too soon. It's too soon. We're not ready to be watching reality on TV. We want to escape. Yeah.
0: The only reality TV I want to watch is like people dating or 90 Day Fiance or...
1: <laughs> Which is still totally not real Not reality. my real life, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, what a crazy time. All right, Lauren, what do we have queued up for today's show?
0: Up on today's Problematic Women. We said we were going to interview some of the new conservative congresswomen-elect on the podcast, and today we are keeping that promise. Kat Kamick of Florida joins the show to discuss her own personal journey from homelessness to the halls of Congress. Plus, Melissa McCarthy apologizes for supporting an anti-human trafficking organization that also just happens to be
1: pro-life. And as always, we'll be crowning our problematic woman of the week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or
0: just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on our podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference.
1: All right, let's get to it.
0: presidential election is still being contested one thing is for sure 2020 was a banner year for conservative women with 17 and counting republican women winning their elections and will be joining the legislative branch next term one of those women's is kat kamik fellow floridian who won her election in florida's third district kat welcome to the show thank you so much pleasure to be here So Representative-Elect, I'm sure you don't get tired of hearing that right now. Your story to political office really starts in 2011 when your family ranch fell on some hard times due to Obama-era policies. Can you explain? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up the daughter of a single mother, and we had a a small
2: family business. I'm a third-generation commercial sandblaster, and uh, we grew up on a small cattle ranch. And it was uh, April of 2011 that I got word through my mom that we were losing our home. And it was because we had undergone a remodification process, which so many homeowners across the country, especially after the OA crash, were doing, uh, trying to, to get some relief. And Obama, President Obama, had at that time um, instituted his signature housing initiative. But what no one Failed to real or everyone, no one realized was that this eighteen hundred page bill uh, incentivized big banks to encourage people to get into remodification loans, and then uh, put them through that process for about six to eight months, and then at the end they would lose the loan because they would get a credit from the federal government for every home that couldn't quote unquote be saved. And so us, along with 7 million other Americans around the country, we lost our homes. And it wasn't because we weren't qualified for for the loan. It was because this government program had been written in such a way that it was incentivizing banks to make more money by pushing people out of their homes. And so it really was a failure of a one-size-fits-all program. And we found ourselves homeless for several months And it was during that time I had just graduated college and uh, my mom and I, we found ourselves staying at an extended stay motel. It was a pay by the week type of establishment, a little bit of a in a rough neighborhood. And um, I, I decided at that point in time that my plan to take over the family business and to get involved in possibly the energy industry was no longer an option. And I decided to get involved. And I had a family friend that called me and said, my uncle is running for Congress in Florida and we think you'd be a great, fit. he needs a campaign manager. And at that point in time, I was exceptionally motivated, very angry at government and frustrated with the way things have been going in our country. And and so I made a hard right and drove to Florida, showed up on Ted Yoho's doorstep at 2 o'clock in the morning and joined his campaign team. Uh, Once we won, we took out a 24-year incumbent um, I joined the official office and for the last seven years have, have served as his deputy chief of staff, and so that brings us to today.
0: <laughs> well, Ted Yoho was such a principled conservative, and, and you know, it was, it was definitely a loss when I heard he wasn't running for re-election. How do you think working for him really prepared you to, for this election and, and to win and eventually join the Congress? Well, you know, I served as, you know, his deputy
2: chief and primarily in the district. And so that gave me the opportunity to really get to know every inch of our district, every neighborhood, every issue, a lot of the folks that were um, movers and shakers in in our region. And that was, of course, very helpful. But what I learned from Ted was um, beyond politics, a lot of life lessons. And and he was a mentor for me in so many ways um, in, in just how you how you deal with people and and how you approach um, issues. And and certainly as a principled conservative, he faced some pretty um, tough adversity on Capitol Hill. And, you know, he had been a large animal veterinarian for 30 years. And when you have that self, you know, that autonomy and you're, you know, by yourself and you're making decisions, running your business, it can be hard to be Thrown into a situation where you're a team player, and all of a sudden you're negotiating and 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 maneuvering for legislation. And so um, he taught me how to get things done without compromising my principles. And he built an incredible team, and and I'm very fortunate that uh, many people of in that team are sticking with me through this next chapter. And it's it's exciting, you know. He he was very much a a guy who would tell you. Not necessarily what you wanted to hear, but he would always give you his word. And, and up here, what I am learning very quickly now as a member is that once you give your word and then you break it, you can't get it back. And, and, and it's, it's under a microscope on Capitol Hill. So it's very important to me to, to say what I mean and mean what I say and, and follow up on that.
0: Well, I can't imagine what your life has been like for the past couple of months campaigning, but also you are married to a first responder. Um, And I mean, obviously, we've all been struggling with COVID and that makes his job even more dangerous. And now, you know, the anti-police sentiment that's that's really, unfortunately, growing across the country. How have you been able to handle all of that at one time? You know, I don't think there's anything Pisses me off more than the
2: defund police. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to be so so coarse, but I, I just I I cannot wrap my head around um, the notion that the very people that put their lives on the line for our communities every single day um, that that there are people in in our country in our communities that want to do away with that, and it's very frustrating. Uh, just as, as you know, a patriot, as an American citizen, you know, it's frustrating to hear that. But then as the wife of a first responder and my husband and I, we have a nonprofit organization that exists for the sole purpose of supporting police and fire departments. We purchase critical life-saving equipment that departments can't afford, mostly in rural areas. And we, we've we been facing this uphill battle for years, but especially this year, seeing seeing the divisive. Um, rhetoric and nature of, of what's unfolding in our country has been so disheartening. And, and it really does. It gets, it gets to me in a way that is very, very personal. You know, the very first thing that I see in our kitchen when I wake up in the morning is my husband's SWAT vest on our kitchen table. And it is a constant, everyday reminder of the sacrifice that our men and women uh, give to our communities every single day, going out the door, not knowing if they're going to make it back, because every day is something new. And it could be that one patrol stop. It could be that one fire. It could be, uh, you know, one swap call out that goes that goes wrong. And they may not make it home that night. And for someone who and typically I ask a lot of these folks, you know, have you ever done a ride along? And they say, no, I said, go do a ride along and come back to me after you have done an entire shift. And- first responders and then tell me how you feel about them. It's just something that really gets to my core. You know, my dad was a police officer and and it's something that I'm going to fight tooth and nail here on Capitol Hill for is protecting and advocating for our first responders.
0: Uh, Well, before we go any farther in the interview, can you let our listeners know where they can find more information about your organization?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it's called the Grit Foundation. It is a the foundation.org. We are the official charity for 14 police and fire departments in north-central northeast Florida, and we're growing. Uh, we found very early on that there were tremendous amounts of, of grants out there for police and fire departments, federal grants, but by the time they went through the process of applying and, and, and had gone through all the hoops, the strings attached to these federal grants were so uh, burdensome and, and there it was just so all involved that they had to hire more people just to manage the grant so it was kind of a, a a defeating process so we wanted to make an effort to really provide the critical equipment that our departments need and every department is different we have purchased everything from canines for police departments to help stop the the opioid and the drug problems in our hometown to uh, particulate blocking hoods, which prevents cancer in our fire service, which that is a huge silent killer of our first responders, our firefighters. Uh, Everything from ballistic vests, it's, it's, really uh, important that we are outfitting our men and women in uniform with the necessary tools and resources to get the job done safely, not just for themselves, but also for their crews, their partners, and for our communities. So thegritfoundation.org, you can learn more about us there. And uh, it's all private dollars. We don't accept a single cent of federal or state money, and that was by design. I, I think that it's so much better when we have the communities coming together to support our departments.
0: So Wow. Well, <laughs> thank you for that. That is, that is so interesting uh, and so important. I wanted to pivot, you, you know, after the election, you, you're now a, a congresswoman elect. What has it been like? I mean, are, are you traveling from your district to D.C.? Is it just lots of meetings? Can you give us a little inside peek? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, So right after actually I'm in Washington DC right now uh, for freshman orientation and we have a bipartisan freshman orientation so it's really exciting to meet all of my colleagues in the 117 freshman class on the Republican side as well as the Democrat side and Uh, One thing that I wanted to do right out the gate uh, was bring people along this journey with me. So I have basically been vlogging every day, uh, taking behind the scenes photos, doing Facebook lives in different parts of the Capitol and some of the house office buildings, showing people what it's like to go through freshman orientation as a member elect. And uh, I'm sharing that on Instagram and on Facebook. So I encourage people, if you are curious about the process from when you get elected to the the day that you swear in, uh, make sure you follow us because it's so, so many things that people don't realize from uh, setting your office up to the technology, the outfit you to, to the ethics trainings, to doing things like this. You know, I'm sitting right. Now in a hotel media room, and uh, my husband is here with me, and and it's just really interesting stuff in the different trainings, especially in the COVID era, how how house uh, admin is really adapting to all of these changes that we have had to make as member elects and coming into this next class. So I encourage folks to please follow us and and you'll get a really cool insider look on some of the things. And of course the, the Capitol Hill complex is basically shut down. So we're, we're making an effort to, to open up the people's house and and give them behind the scene tours on Facebook Live because it's frustrating. You know, the the Capitol should never be shut down. This is the House of Representatives, the people's house, it belongs to to us and we the people. And so any effort that we can bring people along and show them uh, really behind the curtain of what's going on, we wanna do that.
0: And that gets right into my next question. You and I are about the same age in our early thirties and you know, more and more millennials are getting elected to Congress. How do you think millennials are going to govern, and what kind of unique experiences is our generation going to bring to the table? Well, you know I take I
2: take the title and the responsibility as the youngest Republican woman in in the country very seriously. Uh, at thirty two, I will be the youngest Republican woman in Congress, both House and Senate. And I think that that is a responsibility that, One gives young women, conservative women, a seat at the table. And for the last two years, with the rise of the squad, I I felt that, you know, a conservative woman's viewpoint was lost in in the mix. And I always would turn on my television and I would see members of the squad and I would say, you know, they don't represent me. And it was frustrating because I would talk to people and they say, oh, well, you know, you're like AOC. I'm like, no, not quite. (laughs) Um, But I think it's important, we as millennials and the Gen Z's that are coming right behind us, we're inheriting all of it, good, bad, indifferent, all of the decisions of our predecessors, you know, $27 trillion in debt, deficit record deficit spending, a broken healthcare system. These are all issues that are really gonna impact us the most. And so the, the decisions that are being made today by folks that are at retirement age or older, they're not gonna have to live with the decisions that they make. The votes that I cast are tremendously personal because they're gonna impact me and my colleagues and, and millennials. And like I said, Gen Z's coming up right behind us the most. So we have some very serious decisions to make. And, and I think that uh, my colleagues on the, on the left, you know, I met the uh, the youngest Democratic woman for the 117th, Sarah Jacobs, out of San Diego, California. And when we started talking about the issues that we cared about, you know, we, we actually found some common ground. And even though I'm on the right and she's on the left, I think when we take the, the, the politics out of it and really focus on the policy and we don't go after personalities we're able to actually get something done. So millennials, we grew up in a different era where we had friends of every, every color, every creed, every background. And so the social issues I don't think are going to, uh, to be as prominent as they have been in previous generations. But I think the policies, we're gonna make some tremendous headway on the things that have been uh, left broken for, for decades.
0: Well, and I wanted to talk to you about your priorities going into Congress. What are you know some of your top issues and the issues that are really close to your heart?
2: So I've got some national priorities as well as some, some state and district priorities. Um, in my district, we have a, a pretty suburban and rural area. Um, and with COVID, it was really highlighted pretty, pretty astutely the need for access to high-speed, reliable Internet. Whether it was healthcare, whether it was commerce, whether it was education, there are people in my district that still have dial-up, if you
0: can imagine.
2: And so you know, that that has been a tremendous challenge for, for not just my district, but rural communities all across America. It's 2020. It's time that we invest once and for all in, in making sure that people have access to high-speed internet. In order to compete, we are going to have to do that. And I, and I liken it to the, um, the, the early 1920s when rural co-ops really electrified America. And um, so this is really that moment in our nation's history, I believe, in getting that, that everyone connected and really bridging that digital divide.
0: Can, I, can, been, I, re- can I real oh. quick, my, my sister lives in uh, rural Lakeland. And she uh, does not actually does not have access to high speed internet. She has to have that satellite internet and wow. I cannot FaceTime with my niece. So I have to say, this is a very personal issue to me. Exactly. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Case in point right there. I mean, it's, it's wild to me to think that in, in twenty. 20- we have areas that are not connected or don't have the ability to be connected. And I myself personally, when my husband and I bought a house several years ago, they told us, no, you're not, you know, you have to get satellite internet. And I said, well, that's not going to work. You know, it's not fast enough. And, and I have, you know, work to do. And they said, well, you're kind of SOL. So, um, you know, that's something I'm very passionate about because I think it's a great um, equalizer. And, and I like to say, you know, America is based on equal opportunity, not equal outcome. And, and if everyone has access, you know, that equal access to, to internet, you know, the sky is the limit, truly. And it doesn't have to be a government response either. There's so many ways that we can really bridge that digital divide using private sector technology. Microsoft, for example, has a great uh, plan to um, make way on, on this issue using white spaces through public access channels. And uh, just a few short years ago, we were working with the FCC to make sure that the regulatory environment was conducive to that. we got some regulations taken off the books to allow them to do it. And that's one way that we can stream broadband using simple technology, low orbit satellites that Uh, You know, OneWeb, uh, they they were working on uh, just a year ago. That is also a way that we can provide rural broadband. There's private sector solutions that we need to be harnessing and leveraging before looking to the government to provide this infrastructure. We just have to be a facilitator to making sure that the regulatory environment is conducive to letting private sector innovate and then basically getting out the way so they can get it deployed. So,
0: what does it mean to you that the people of Florida's third district trusted you with the responsibility of representing them? It's probably the not probably
2: it is the most humbling experience of my life for sure. Um, I I tell people that I am exceptionally grateful for this opportunity, and as every day goes by, as we go through orientation, I become more and more convinced that um, this is a very serious and, and very um, uh, humbling experience it is, but it's something that every day I I need to work harder. And and I feel, I feel every day (laughs) that, you know, I I tell myself, well, you got to work harder than you did the day before, because it's just one of those, this is one of those experiences that um, you have a lot of people counting on you and there's 710,000 constituents In our district in the third congressional district of Florida and when you have had 200 plus thousand people vote for you and they have put their their credibility in you you know and and given you a stamp of credibility it's a very heavy burden and I take it very seriously and we're, we're working through building a team that that also shares that and I walk around the Capitol complex through orientation and I look at, you know, some of the the greats that have walked the halls before me. And I really dig deep in thinking, you know, this this is this is my constitutional duty. And, and any opportunity to serve our country is one that is an experience and a humbling experience of a lifetime. So I'm internally grateful for this opportunity. And there's just. I, I haven't even been able to find the words as you can probably tell right now. I just haven't been able to really find the words to express how thankful I am. Um, but uh, people ask me that question. And like I said, it's just, it still hasn't hit me. It's a little surreal.
0: Um, so I, I'm working on trying to find the words. <laughs> <laughs> well, frequently on the show, we talk about, you know, how being pro-life is really the most pro-woman stance. And and you released this campaign ad that, I mean, it's really uh was really moving about how your mom was encouraged to get an abortion with you and, and how she, she chose life. So, you know, how does that affect you, how you're going to think through pro-life legislation and, and really just, you know, every part of you being a member of the House of Representatives? You know, um, it's funny because my mom and I never really, um,
2: uh, prior to this election, you know, it was just one of those things that was always, you know, our family knew it, but I never really shared it, particularly in conservative circles, because, you know, I never, I, I never thought that it was my story to tell. And, you know, my mom is an incredible woman who has had the most amazing life um, and, and overcome so much. And And so I hope one day someone tells her life story. And when I launched the campaign, I asked her if it would be okay to share the story. And she, she gave me permission. And, um, and it, it I didn't expect that people, it would hit people the way that it did. Um, having, you know, an older sister, you know, uh, she, when my mom was pregnant with her and suffered a stroke, and to this day, you know, she still has um, some remnants of of that stroke. You know, she, she has some um, vision issues on her left side and when she got pregnant with me and the doctors told her to abort me because she wouldn't survive the pregnancy, nor would I. Um, that was one thing. But I think the thing that hurt her the most was when my grandmother, her mother, told her to abort me. Um, and instead, she chose life. So the, the story is very personal. And I think as a young woman, uh, it's important that I share that story now. Um, Because I do believe that it's really young women that are most affected by by the issue. Um, But beyond that story, beyond beyond my personal testimony, I think that um, government is notorious for hypocrisy. And when I look at our federal government and their response to things, I think, how is it that we can possibly classify bacteria on Mars as life, but we will not classify um, a fetus in the womb as life? I find that exceptionally hypocritical. And if you look at the DOJ and, and their their classification for a double homicide, uh, a pregnant woman who is murdered, um, that is a double homicide. The DOJ recognizes that, that fetus in the womb as life. But yet it's not the case if it's the woman who decides to make that choice. Um, I just think that there's things that we need to look at differently when we talk about this issue beyond our personal testimony, because we can move the needle on this issue. I do believe we can. And and it's so important because it is in our founding um, ethos, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It starts with life. And we need to do everything we can to protect it and show that every life is precious and valuable and, and worthwhile. So I think that, again, we talked a little bit about you know, finding the words to you know describe the how I'm feeling about the the trust and confidence that my constituents have put in me. This this is part of it, and 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 really trying to find a way to articulate um, the the responsibility that I that I'm feeling about these very core issues that make up not just who I am, but who I believe we are as a country.
0: Yeah, well, well, well. Thank you, and thank to your mom for for sharing your story and uh, your passion on that issue. My final question is a question we ask all the women who come on the show. And my favorite question to always ask is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Why or why not? You know, I never have traditionally
2: thought of myself as a feminist because I felt like the left kind of kidnapped or co-opted the word feminist. But a few weeks ago, I had lunch with a family member, an aunt of mine who is a member of the Green Party. Um, She's she's exceptionally liberal, a lovely, lovely woman. But she said, I'm so proud that we will have a Republican feminist in the family. And I thought about that for a minute. And and I do think that there is a uh, a role and and room for conservative women um, in the feminist movement. Because... If you look at really the genesis, it's about choice and diversity of thought and making choices for yourself. And and so I do think that a conservative label does apply. I've just never typically used the term.
0: I love it. I love it. We get, we get such good answers. And, and, you know, I think that's such a great conversation you had with your aunt. Kat, I am so excited to see what you're going to do in Congress. And just thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Hey, thank you so
2: much, Lauren. It's really good to talk to you and uh, best of luck. I'm so excited to follow your career.
1: Stay tuned because up next, we chat about actress Melissa McCarthy's apology for supporting an anti-sex trafficking organization that also happens to be pro-life. But first, where are you getting your news? This is such a crazy time in American history, and it can be hard to know what news platforms you can trust. If you're not aware, Problematic Women is a product of The Daily Signal, and The Daily Signal is the multimedia news arm of the Heritage Foundation. What separates The Daily Signal from so many other news platforms is that in addition to having a dedicated team of journalists on staff, we also have more than 100 policy experts who we can use to verify various facts, information, pull research from, and really glean from their insight in order to make sure that our reporting is as solid and fact-based as possible. And that you know ranges in issues from election integrity to immigration to the economy. So if you need to find a solid place to get your news, I really encourage you in this crazy time in history to go ahead and start checking out the Daily Signal for your news every day. So visit DailySignal.com. So,
0: Virginia, it's kind of ironic. At the top of the show, we were talking about how we thought Hollywood was too much connected to reality. But now I want to talk about how they're completely disconnected from reality. And that is through an apology that actress Melissa McCarthy shared on her Instagram after she set out to support a nonprofit organization with the mission to end sex trafficking that just happened to be pro-life. Take a listen.
3: Hi there. Um, It has come to our attention that our 20 Days of Kindness, which is something a kindness hub that we started to kind of shed the light on 20 great charities, had one um, in there that there's no other way to say it. We blew it. We made a mistake and we backed a charity that upon proper vetting stands for everything that we do not. Um, So I want to thank everyone um, on social media who said, what are you doing? Are you sure you want to back this? Because the answer is no, we do not. We have pulled it. We are so incredibly grateful for you ringing the bell and helping us be better. Uh, We're sorry for our mistake. Oh, boy, are we sorry for it. Can't believe that we missed it. Um, And that's it. And I just, uh, I want to say I hope it doesn't ding the other charities because they're really doing some amazing things and 20 days of kindness, uh, is really meant to shine the light on, um, all of those wonderful charities. So let the kindness continue and, uh, thank you. Thanks for the help. We really needed it.
0: The mission of the organization is quote, Abolishing sex trafficking and breaking the cycle of commercial sexual exploitation while assisting and empowering
1: its victims. Exodus Cry proposes that to actually end the trafficking of sex slaves, culture has to shift. They write on their website that uh, sex sells, that that sex sells mindset has really saturated the world around us, even shaping the lives of our children. But what happens to a society that commercializes sex? Sexuality becomes separated from a real person and becomes a commodity. It becomes no more valuable than the products it's pushing Though sex trafficking is a deeply disturbing injustice, its existence is not all that shocking in light of the way much of our world views sexuality. If we want to live in a world where people aren't sold for sex, then our hypersexualized society must be transformed. That's how we can stop exploitation before it starts. For wanting to destroy, the sex industry, and also for being an organization with Christian pro-life roots. McCarthy has pulled the $20,000 donation that she had initially promised the group.
0: Virginia, this is just literally insane. I mean, what do you think this says about our culture? That Hollywood stars are shamed for supporting an organization that has an amazing mission, does really good work, but just happens to be pro-life and is opposed to the sale of sex.
1: Yeah, Lauren. I mean, I I'm really glad that you uh you found this story and that you sent it to me because it's something that we need to be talking about. This this is not okay to get to this point in society um where we're so unable to agree to disagree on certain issues that we say we throw up our hands and say, Oh, we just cannot support, you know, anyone that doesn't align with me in, you know every single way that doesn't check every box of my sort of political social views. Exodus Cry uh, is actually one of um, the first groups that educated me (laughs) on human trafficking. They have an excellent and a documentary uh, slash dramatized film called Nefarious that talks about the sex trade, that talks about sex trafficking and I watched that when I was 18 years old and really had my eyes open to what is this situation they do incredible work with walking uh, with individuals who are coming out of sex trafficking, counseling them allowing uh, them to have that space to heal and then also helping them to you know establish a life again uh, so this, this is a solid group, but it was founded by Christians and it was founded by those who have pro-life values, but nowhere on their website do they, you know, blast out, we're pro-life and, you know, you have to be pro-life if you're involved with us. Their mission is to end sex trafficking. Uh, and if we can't support a group with you know, a mission that is that just and that right, simply because we disagree in another area. Uh, that's a really, really scary commentary on on what society has come to.
0: So while I completely, completely, completely disagree about the pro-life thing. You know, I think as, as women, we should be able to get together and, you know, really help other women. You know, I, I can understand someone who is vehemently pro-choice, who like, has a little concern, but what really gets me is the women who want to end sex trafficking, but also want to promote sex work. I mean, it just doesn't seem, there's already a, a market of women who are being exploited. So the sex trafficking is always going to be there. You know, mm-hmm. like it, yeah. if, if you look at websites that are, are totally legal and, and totally profitable, like, uh, you know, all the pornography websites like Pornhub, they all have women who are being sex trafficked on it. I mean, just because something is legal doesn't mean that everybody, all the players are doing the right thing. So uh, I I just, uh, it makes me sad because you, you think Melissa McCarthy is one of those women who are more normal in Hollywood. You know, she's not out there a lot of times wearing the pink hat. I was just watching Gilmore girls with my friends this weekend. Uh, I'm not an early Christmas decorator, but they are. So We actually were watching Gilmore Girls Christmas episodes eating like tons of junk food. It was such a, you know, we were talking earlier about escapes from reality. But yeah, it just, uh, it's really disheartening to see that women care more about promoting sex work than they care about ending sex trafficking.
1: Yeah, well, Lauren, I think that's a really good point because I think so much of this comes down to just like a fundamental misunderstanding, like kind of, uh, a thinking of uh, that you can have it all like you can still allow for there to be, um, you know, a legal uh, illegal sex work, uh, but then thinking, but we can still effectively then eliminate sex trafficking. And I think what what we've seen in country after country is that is nearly impossible. That when you have an an active not only like legal, um, you know, not only the ability to for sex workers to operate legally, but where you have a culture that is really sexualized and is encouraging sex at a young age and and often that that naturally is just going to create a culture that then is really easy for sex trafficking to take place. Uh, So you kind of, you kind of have to choose. You don't really get to have it all. Well, the last thing I want to end the segment with is this
0: just really shows why the pro-life movement is just, I mean, better in every way. Not only are they correct, uh, we've, we've found how that you can do both. You can, advocate for the end of abortion, but you don't have to villainize the women who have had abortions. And I think with Mm -hmm. sex work, it's the same thing. We want to end sex work. We want to end sexual exploitation of of both women and men, but we don't have to hate the people who are currently sex workers because most of the time, either they were abused in the situation, it was their only option. We can, you know, I want to steal the language from the pro-life movement i love them both and we can work together to end sex trafficking and we can work together to end abortion and yeah melissa mccarthy is wrong i'm sure she listens to this show and and tomorrow (laughs) you'll you'll, the headline
1: will be she gives the money back never mind guys (laughs) well melissa mccarthy if you are listening no we would love to have you on the show to discuss this so you're welcome anytime All right, well, we're going to take a
0: quick break, and when we're back, we're going to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week.
1: This is Virginia Allen, host of the Daily Signal podcast. I don't know about you, but YouTube is certainly one of my guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics, so I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content, from policy and news explainers to documentaries. If you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel, so you can be in the know on the issues you care about most. You can also search for the channel by going to youtube.com slash dailysignal.
0: Now it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to Congresswoman-elect Kat Kamek. She is so awesome. I went to dinner with a friend last night, and uh, he's also working for a Congresswoman-elect. And we just talked all night about how amazing this group of women are. And, you know, I just... Kept bringing up the interview and everything we talked about, and I'm just I'm so hyped for Virginia.
1: I know it really is, Lauren. As we've said on the show, like this is such an incredible time in history to see so many powerful women really rising to their place in leadership and into the halls of Congress. And wow, it's just going to be so fun to to watch these powerful women lead over the course of the next two years and beyond. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Next week is Thanksgiving, so we're moving the show up one day. Problematic Women will release a special Turkey Day episode on Wednesday, so you have something fun to listen to on your drive home to your parents' house or wherever you might be headed for Thanksgiving.
0: And do not forget, conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference.
1: Have a great week, and remember to tune in on Wednesday for a special Thanksgiving Day episode of Problematic
3: Women.